You're listening to Supply Chain Radio. My name is Matt Gunn, and I've got Geek with me today. We are in Tennessee at the University of Tennessee Supply Chain Forum. And this is going to be a somewhat sprawling topic, but it's only because when you go out into the field, these are things that everyone's trying to wrap their head around, right? And it ties to customers, it ties to demographics, it ties to really sustainability and how you keep the supply chain running when everything is stacked against you. But let's start with this. Guy, what are your thoughts on what you hear at these types of conferences and how it all ties back to a certain segment of consumers? Yeah, thanks, Matt. You know, it's always good to be at these conferences. I think there's always things you can learn and always interesting to hear different perspectives. But it's interesting. So, you know, like many of us, we go to a lot of these conferences on a regular basis and it being springtime now, it's definitely high conference season. And, and one of the key topics that I always hear is the consumer. Whether you're, you're in, in industry, whether you're a retailer, whether you are a services company, at the end of the day, what is becoming more and more apparent is the consumer is driving that relationship. So we know, and we here at Supply Chain Radio have talked about this at length in our other podcasts, the importance of retailers and CP companies paying attention to the consumer. But it's apparent that this is now crossing all industries and that at some point they all know that even if they're B2B, there's always a C behind that B. So there's a consumer somewhere and at some point they have to make sure that they address that consumer. So I think we're hearing more and more of that sort of undertone constantly being driven at from main stage and, and from the breakout sessions and, and from hallway conversations we're having here in Tennessee. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some of it can be in part just because of where we are. Like this is on a college campus where there's very much a tie to the education that's being provided or sought after by their undergrad and grad students and the companies that come to these events either to present or to recruit or to simply be involved as alumni giving back to a community that they came from. Everyone's trying to figure this part out, and we talk about it. We talk about the millennials, or we talk about now oh, going... Oh, yes, millennials. Right? And then now, you know, we're, what are we going into next? The digital natives, the generation... Gen Z's, Z, I think. I yes, think. Gen Z. We'll give them a clever title later, I suppose. And there's a lot of Gen Xers in the room, too, that have uh, yeah, been doing this for a while. Yeah, what's up with that? Like, Gen Xers are getting totally, you know, disregarded, and Gen Xers are the ones that are getting all the disposable income now. Like... They just, become bosses. Just putting it out there that, you know, the Gen <laughs> Xers are the ones, you know, they're the middle-aged rich people that are spending the money. So let's not forget them. But millennials are, are a hard to categorize or hard to quantify bunch. And I think it's just because we're in this age where their world has been connected to technology. And so they lead with the Internet first and they lead with research and they lead with wanting more information about the products they interact with, the brands they buy from, where things come from. There's so much more of a push for transparency in the supply chain. And really, when it comes to adding to the workforce and pulling from these people that have recently graduated college or who are thinking about entering a career in supply chain or its related fields here, is that they also want specific things from the companies they work for. They want to have a, a belief in a cause that they're con contributing in some way and that the company that they're with lines up to their own value systems, just like the products that they buy too. Now, consumerization and people driving forward change. We talk about it from a retail standpoint where maybe right now consumer technology has put so much more power in the customer's hand, but also it means that you're constantly playing catch up as a company or a brand. It's happening inside the workforce too, where they've been exposed to more things. And so they're pulling and, and asking for more as well. But how can we kind of quantify some of the ways that millennials make a difference or their buying habits drive change for these companies that we 
come across at uh, conferences or in our day-to-day life? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because we, we did a study with YouGov a while back, which lends some very interesting data points. And we actually were just, uh, or I was just in London a few weeks ago doing some on-the-street interviews with millennials about their shopping habits and, more importantly, their loyalty to brands. And you're right, like, we're hearing this theme over and over again here at this conference around you know, addressing this segment of the population differently than they do the other sort of air quote here generations. And we can get a philosophical debate about that in another podcast. But, you know, I think what's interesting, what we found was at the end of the day, the millennials, for lack of a better term, are in a way brand loyal in a, I guess, a traditional way. What I mean by that is if they walk into a store and the product is not available, they will buy a substitute product. Well, that's interesting. That's how I behave. That's how my parents might behave. That's how my grandparents might have behaved, right? If they walked in and they wanted to buy a loaf of bread and their brand wasn't there, they would just buy a similar loaf of bread. Or if they walked in and there was a pair of jeans they wanted and the brand wasn't there, maybe they'd go buy a different brand. So I think from that standpoint, it does come back down to this notion of availability of product, availability of choice of product and of price. One thing the study did lend itself to, which I think was very interesting from a, a brand loyalty standpoint for millennials, is this notion of sustainability, right? This notion of environmentally conscious, both from a standpoint of how products are manufactured, how they're sourced, how they're distributed. So, you know, understanding that, okay, this product doesn't leverage child labor in Bangladesh, or that this product is using non-conflict cotton, or this product is conscious of their environmental footprint, so they're trying to use less water in the production, right? There's all these new aspects of visibility that we are able to now look into that the millennials are asking for and they expect from their brands. And it's interesting, we've heard this today, you know, here at the conference in University of Tennessee, you know, a large uh, CP manufacturer was on main stage, uh, McCormick, I think we can mention their name since it's public, but McCormick was, you know, talking a lot about their sustainability products and programs. And it's fascinating that they're looking both from a standpoint of how their raw materials are sourced, but how they're packaged, how they're transported and things like that. And one thing that I've always sort of debated about this is while this is a new-ish concept and a new driver when it comes to brand loyalty and consumption, is it because we are all of a sudden waking up to it? Or is it because 10, 15 years ago, we didn't have the tools with which to truly get visibility into product manufacturing? I look back to, this might be 20 years ago now, you know, if people remember this when you know, South Africa still had apartheid and certain brands, I think like Coke, were actually boycotted because the consumer was aware of their practices in South Africa because that was public information. Consumers all of a sudden realized, wait, Coke is selling entities, let's boycott Coke. Now, I might argue that if they had more information about other products, they might change their behavior as well. Today, we have access to information. So today, we can say, hey, I want to know exactly, you know, if I'm Starbucks, what coca beans I use and all that, where I'm sourcing that from, because the consumer expects to be able to see it or access it through technology. Whereas 20, 30, 40 years ago, we didn't have that information. We didn't have access to it. So as consumers, maybe we're just ignorantly bliss. It wasn't that we didn't care about it, is that we just didn't have the tools to really get to the, the root cause. I would argue we saw people reacting to things, again, like apartheid. That's a big political, you know, social political discussion. I get it. But it's an example of, hey, when people had that visibility, that insight into something they thought, which was rightfully so, unfair, 
that they changed their buying behavior. Now we have all that information. So now we can start doing things subconsciously we might have wanted to do in the past, but now we have the information to do it. It's an interesting philosophical place for a brand to go to because, well, it's nuanced, right? There's only, if you're Coca-Cola, some of that comes down to just your marketing. Absolutely. If you're Starbucks and your primary product depends on a plant that can only be grown and sourced in certain parts of the world or McCormick's, to go back to that example of a spice seller. It's a food product that depends on conditions that are sometimes out of their control. So if you do have to source from somewhere, say Afghanistan or Turkey or Syria, Syria, for certain crops that will only grow in those regions, or if you're Starbucks and a good portion of your coffee comes from places like Colombia, where... It's not always the most stable place to be. Not always stable. How do you kind of navigate around that, still provide some level of transparency, or build sustainability programs in that can at least show that you're part of that community and not part of the problem? McCormick made a great quote from stage today where he said, you know, you can't move the equator, right? They're physically constrained that a lot of their raw materials are grown in the tropics or subtropics. And you mentioned some of the places, right? Turkey, or, or they mentioned Syria. And... You know, how do you get stuff out of Syria? Like, I believe it was saffron they're talking about. The majority of their saffron comes out of Syria. That's where it grows. And can you replicate that elsewhere? Now we're getting to history lessons, but does this go back to the age-old issue of spice trade, right, where certain spices only grew in certain areas, and because they were valued, then they commanded that kind of price, right? They mentioned, like, vanilla beans, right, how expensive it's become and what a commodity it is in terms of, you know, you and I were joking about this, but in a way it's true. It's... It's almost you know the value of illegal drugs, right? The yeah. street value of this vanilla bean is something like two hundred and forty pounds as of today because of a, a weather condition that came right. through. And vanilla grows in Madagascar primarily for McCormick, and it takes a long time for that crop to go from being a tree to something that's actually creating the vanilla beans, which themselves take three years to yield a crop. And you can't replicate that. And and last time I checked, my kid still likes vanilla ice cream. And I don't know if I can get him off that. But I think it's one of those things where you look at these supply chains and you recognize that at the end of the day, this is a truism too, I believe, is that at the end of the day, supply chains still have, and will maybe, uh, I would like to say always, but I know that's too bold of a statement, but for the near term, we'll have physical and geographic constraints, that no matter how much technology we put into it, how much optimization we look at, how much new theories or X, Y, Z, or if we blockchain everything, the physical and geographic constraints of supply chains will always exist. And McCormick was a great example of it. I think one of the other speakers from main stage, in a way, addressed it as well. There's physical constraints of moving goods. You know, no one talked about it today, but you think about things such as like the Suez Canal, the Panama Canal, right? There's physical constraints, right? If you go back to like the Panama Canal having to expand itself, why? It's to get bigger container ships through because there is a physical constraint of actually not being able to physically put that ship through a traditional canal. So we kind of get away from this sometimes of remembering that at the end of the day, whether you're a McCormick or whether you're you know, a clothing manufacturer, or whether you're a heavy industrial manufacturer, if you need rare, rare metals or things like that, there are going to be physical constraints that we can't get around. And that's part of the, the need for constantly thinking about this in your supply chain plan and, and how you do this. And now on top of it, this notion of 
being sustainable, being environmentally friendly, I think is becoming more and more of a, not a nice to have, but it's a need to have. And for some, it seems like McCormick is doing a good job of it, is leveraging it as a growth driver. So, you know, when we think about this stuff and you and I and, and others, you know, we, we love talking about the technology aspect and some of the other parts of supply chain, but we always have to remember that there's a physical aspect and those things have constraints. If there's a mountain between you and your customer, you got to get around the mountain. That's just it. You know, it's not going anywhere. Absolutely. It's an interesting problem to solve. And there was a question posed today where, you know, obviously these things that are being done in sustainability aren't just being done for the customer's sake, but because it does drive the bottom line where the ability to close the loop on water, like just harvest all of your water for a crop from rooftops, from sustainable means by, you know, not having to get water from outside sources or even down to the way that boxes are reused and recycled throughout the whole supply chain. One, it saves a lot of money. Two, it's creating value at a certain level. So, you know, this discussion between the idea of a value chain or the idea of a supply chain, do we get lost in the semantics of this particular topic when really every part of the supply chain should be coming down to thinking about these values within. I think at some level, you're right. I think we've seen some of the examples ourselves and our customers, but now we're seeing, you know, seeing it from these conferences like this where it does come down to that. And I think some of these, some of these brands are thinking about it more actively and trying to figure out it's a combination of leveraging technology and, you know, change management and people and business and all, you know, all the sort of business school 101 mumbo jumbo talk that some of us have gone through. But it does come back down to that. And I think that's, that's what we have to keep in mind when we hit all these topics. And it's interesting because it, it forces one to think, to sometimes just give pause and to think about that general concept and, and what does it mean for my supply chain? What does it mean, again, for my consumer? Because in the, the day, it's all about the consumer. And what does it mean from my business standpoint, right? You got to look at margin. You got to look at profit loss stuff. And I think it's something we have to try to keep in perspective because you're right. I think sometimes we sort of get lost in the, not the details, but sort of the, the fringes of what it, you know, of the shiny new object sort of syndrome, right? And we sort of lose track of this notion of, all right, at the core, what's the value and how do we drive it? Yeah, and the conversation continues. And it is an interesting thing where there are clear operational advantages to doing some of these things. We're not talking about sustainability simply because of the customers, I guess it comes back to. Or we're not doing it for soft and intangible reasons. Yep. There is an inherent value to doing these things, and we're seeing it across industries. So it's fashion, it's retail, it's consumer products. Manufacturing, I mean, everything. And I think that we're seeing... We're not there yet. I think we're still far. We still have a lot of work to do, right? I think we saw this a few months ago or a year ago when you had all the water shortages in California and, and how much the almond industry, right? How much water they use to grow one almond and is that sustainable? You know, why are we growing this water intensive crop in an area where water is in short? Maybe who knows why? And this is a part of sort of full circle back to this, this whole new workforce, the whole millennial stuff. You know, one thing I do think is that at some level, yes, this, shall we say air quotes again, generation of, of kids who are coming into the workforce or have already been in the workforce for a while, I do believe have a much more, and it seems that our study has shown this, and, and it seems like from this conference in particular, there's been a lot of talk about it too. They are also not only more conscious for environmental issues as consumers, but also as employees. So they are taking to the workforce and to the supply chain 
as labor this notion that, hey, we can't ignore sustainability. We can't ignore environmental impacts. This is not 1920s where we're going to just burn coal and put a hole in the sky and not think twice about it. You know, I guess and part of it, too, is and this again, this goes back to a higher discussion is, you know, we're talking about this obviously from a very North American centric point of view. We're talking about this from a very developed economy point of view where, you know, we've gone through the cycles of, of evolution, of economic evolution. Hard to say what that looks like in other places, right? Developing areas, sub-Saharan Africa, look at some parts of Southeast Asia, places like India, things like that, where even parts of China still, where, where development is, is still ramping up, so to speak. In a way, hard to always impose values of a developed economy on those that's into a developing economy. I think that's an excellent point. But there's plenty of signs that the people that are getting their heads wrapped around this, the, the people in supply chain, the people that are working with these brands, whether they're 150 years old like McCormick or just a few years old like you know one of the major retailers that we hear all about, yep. it's becoming part of the way they do business. And they're bringing a much broader perspective to it than perhaps would have been done in the past. And that in itself is some encouragement. Yeah, and it's, you make a great point. You know, you've got this company that's been around forever, McCormick, that seems to be truly taking this to heart. And then, you, like you said, you've got these newer retailers and newer companies that it's already woven into their DNAs. So it's encouraging to see that from both sides. I think that we're going to see more of it. I think that we'll see more companies looking at their supply chains, not only from a, you know, an efficient way of producing and moving and storing and selling goods, but also being able to be more environmentally conscious, being more savvy, and in a way, trying to figure out other ways with which they can better serve the customer and do it in an efficient way. Like one of the uh, executives today said, he doesn't like to think about challenges in the supply chain, but just more opportunities. And I think every time you do solve something, it only opens up a whole new world of creativity and new things that you can do from then on to continue evolving and continue to get better at what you're doing within this. Uh, yeah, and I think that's business. the opportunity for supply chains. Is, and I think that one of the themes that I picked up on, too, and I think maybe you heard it, too, you know, at the session is this notion of it's the golden era of the supply chain. And, you know, we've kind of heard that in the past, but I think it's absolutely true where from main stage, you know, a few of the speakers all sort of reinforced that point by saying supply chains are now not a cost center, but they're a strategic opportunity, right? It is the way you fulfill your strategic ambitions is through your supply chain. So it's no longer about just, okay, let me get the package from point A to point B as cheaply as possible. It's, well, you know, if Matt Gunn's going to order a new Tom Ford suit and I send it to him, how do I leverage the package to make your experience that much better? How do I leverage the packaging to convey a certain experience and message that I want? How do I obviously reduce some costs or make it more efficient? But are there other opportunities that I can use this touch point I have with you as a consumer to my advantage, right? It's not just you open the package, you want your suit, see what it looks like. What else can I do with that, right? What other opportunities are there with that touch point? I don't know. I mean, I think there's, to your point, once you solve for this, all of a sudden other opportunities open up. And I think that's the, that is the exciting part for some of these professionals who are thinking that way, where I think there's a true opportunity to uncover new opportunities, you know, the next generation of things we can do. And that is exciting. I mean, that is, you know, use a cliche. It is, it is like they said, it's the golden age supply chain. And we'll only continue to evolve from there. You heard it here, folks. Guy, thank you for your thoughts on this subject. Always a pleasure to talk to you from uh, lovely Knoxville, Tennessee.
We're glad to participate in programs like this and others. Absolutely. This has been an episode of Supply Chain Radio. Be sure to find us on iTunes or your favorite podcast network. 